Please take your Bibles, join me in the book of Micah as we continue our study through Micah. We'll start a new chapter today. We'll be in chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. I had a place marker there, so it looks like I know my Bible. But for the rest of you, it may take a minute to find. As you're finding your place, remember that Micah is foretelling of the judgment to come upon Israel. He was sent by God to tell Samaria and Jerusalem of their errors. Samaria being the capital of the northern house of Israel, ten tribes. Jerusalem being the capital of the southern house of Israel, um, the house of Judah, excuse me, and the two tribes there. So Micah sent there to foretell of this coming judgment that's going to come upon them because they have rejected God, they have rejected His law, and therefore Micah comes on the scene. And in chapter 2, he addresses the people who were doing wickedly. They were coveting after things. They were devising mischief upon their bed, the Bible says. And in the morning they would practice what they had devised. And they were hungry for possessions and money. And then in chapter 3, Micah points out the leadership in the land. The princes, the prophets, and the priests. He calls out the leadership. And the leadership had been corrupted by money. Micah 3.1 says, The heads thereof judge for reward. The priests thereof teach for hire. The prophets thereof divine for money. Yet will they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? None evil can come upon us. And so because the leadership had become so corrupted and because they refused to honor God, the time had finally come for judgment upon Israel. Micah 1.6 says, Therefore I will make Samaria as an heap of the field, and as plantings of a vineyard, and I will pour down the stones thereof into the valley, and I will discover the foundations thereof. That's one of the judgments to come up against Samaria. And then in Micah 3.12, it says, Therefore shall Zion for your sake be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. And so that was the prophecy against Jerusalem. And so both capital cities are being dressed. In a sense, it's the entirety of Israel. But through the foretelling of the judgment to come, there was also prophecies along the way that would point to the coming Messiah. There was the prophecies of judgment, but then there was this hope that was given uh, intermixed with those prophecies of judgment that Jesus would come and deliver his people. In Micah 2, verses 12 through 13, it says, I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Basra, as the flock in the midst of their fold. They shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. The breaker has come up before them. They have broken up and have passed through the gate and are gone out by it. And their king shall pass before them and the Lord on the head of them. And I believe the breaker there is referring to Jesus Christ. And in the first half of chapter 4, just recapping, getting us to where we'll be today... In the first half of chapter 4, we have the prophecy of what will come to pass in the last days. And in that prophecy, we see fulfillment of Judah coming out of Babylonian captivity. And we see the millennial reign of Christ. And we also see the times of the gospel. We can see all three applications from this prophecy in chapter 4. We saw last time in chapter 4 and verse 8 that the first dominion, the kingdom, shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. There would be a king, there would be a counselor that would come 
And both of those are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And remember that before the blessings of the Messiah, there would be the pains of captivity. They would have to go through their judgment. And many nations were going to be pleased to see the demise of Zion. They would rejoice in their demise. And their pain is likened to a woman in travail laboring to bring forth a child. And chapter 4 ends with how the enemy... And this is, this is a good thought here. It ends and it says that the enemy doesn't know the thoughts of the Lord. They don't understand what the Lord is up to. We understand biblically where things are heading. We, we may not know the details, but we know biblically where things are headed, don't we? We know that the Lord is going to triumph in the end. We can see that, we can read that, we can understand that, but the lost don't know that. They don't know the thoughts of the Lord. And sometimes when they bring their judgment, if you will, upon the children of God, even though God had orchestrated this in Israel, God had a plan through all of that. And that's amazing. He knows the end from the beginning. And so he's working this out. And they don't know the thoughts of the Lord, chapter 4 ends with. And, and they don't understand his counsels because God was going to deliver them in time. And that brings us to chapter 5. Let's read verses 1 through 6 this morning. Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. And this man shall be the peace when the Assyrians shall come into our land and when he shall tread in our places, in our palaces. Then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. And they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod and the entrances thereof. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he cometh into our land when he treadeth within our borders. So as Micah gives this prophecy, I've already hinted at this, there's a bouncing back and forth between the judgment to come and the blessings that will also follow later. There's this back and forth through these prophecies. And we see that pattern here continue in chapter 5. And in verse 1, it goes back to the judgment that is coming. Even though chapter 4 ends on a positive note, chapter 5 opens up, with the reality of the judgment to come. Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. And so Judah here is called the daughter of troops. That word troops is a very interesting term. It is very commonly referred to as troops of robbers is what it would mean. And so the daughter of robbers... And so this daughter of troops, I believe what is being said here is that God is calling them out for their sins of chapter 2 and 3. The people desired money and they robbed people to get it. The princes, the prophets, and the priests desired money and they robbed the people to get it. And now gather yourself, O daughter of troops, because something is about to come upon you. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. 
And so I believe that's the intent here. Jeremiah 7.11 says, Is this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. And the second half of Isaiah 33.1 says, When thou shalt cease to spoil, thou shalt be spoiled. And when thou shalt make an end to deal treacherously, they shall deal treacherously with thee. And just to sum up what Isaiah is saying there, I believe we can say it this way. Hey, Israel, you're about to reap what you have sown. Boy, that's a humbling thought for America today, isn't it? And we see in Micah 5.1 that the enemy would lay siege against them. Now, many have speculated, what does this mean? Who is, who is the ones actually laying siege here? Is it the Assyrians? We see that in context here. Is it the Babylonians? Or does it even point forward to the Romans? Some people have that opinion. I believe the context here is still Judah. It's talking about Zion. It's talking about that. And so I personally believe that that which is going to smite them is going to be the Babylonians because it's referring to Judah. Israel was taken captive by the Assyrians. Judah was taken captive by the Babylonians. And so I believe that's the context here. Um, Not to mention what is said next. I believe better fits the Babylonians, it says, they shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. When the Assyrians came into Israel, the northern ten tribes, and they really got all the way to the doorstep of Jerusalem and mocked Hezekiah, you might remember some of that. And when the Assyrians came in, there was actually this period where they all kind of lived together. It wasn't that they were living together in harmony, but Israel had made themselves tribute to the Assyrians. And for years they were paying a tribute to them and they were kind of cohabitating. Of course, in time that broke down and the Assyrians would lead the house of Israel captive, sow them among the nations. And when they were taken captive, their king, I think I have his name somewhere in here, uh, their king was jailed. Uh, He was put in prison. And I don't know that I have it here. I'm sorry. And so the Babylonians... It wasn't the same. When the Babylonians came in, boy, they came in brutally. And you can read Lamentations. You can see what is all said there. They came in. They destroyed. They killed anybody in their way. And they led everybody captive for 70 years into Babylon. And it was such a brutal takeover by the Babylonians against the house of Judah that when it says here that they... They smote with a rod upon the cheek. Listen to what happened to King Zedekiah. He was the king over Judah when they were taken captive. Jeremiah 52, and you can read this in several places, but I chose this one. Jeremiah 52, 10 and 11 says, And the king of Babylon slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. He slew also all the princes of Judah and Riblah. Then he put out the eyes of Zedekiah. And the king of Babylon bound him in chains and carried him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. Now how cruel is that? He takes the king, gathers his sons, kills his sons right before his eyes, and to be sure that's the last image he has, he cuts his eyes out. How brutal. And I'm just saying there was a big difference between how the Assyrians um, did things and how the Babylonians did things when they came in. Both were bad, don't misunderstand me, but um, for sure the Babylonians smote the leader of Israel. 
Some people see Christ in that. I don't, I don't know that we need to make that stretch. I, I just think this is referring to um, the house of Judah with the Babylonians. And so, um, anyway, it was a very brutal takeover. But as I mentioned, Micah's prophecy, it goes back and forth between judgment and the blessings that will follow down the road, the deliverance that is coming. And after foretelling that the judge of Israel would be smitten with a rod upon the cheek, when Judah was laid siege against, this prophecy now points forward once again to deliverance. Hey, judgment's coming, you're going to reap what you've sown, but then now look at verse number 2. But thou... Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me. That is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from of old, from everlasting. This is a clear prophecy of Jesus' birth. Amen. There is no doubt against that as you study the word of God. When Herod got word from the wise men that someone had been born king of the Jews, he got nervous. Herod was a survivor. He wanted to stay on the throne, and he did. And he killed anybody that got in his way. As you know from the account, he killed all the babies two years and under, hoping to kill the one that was born king of the Jews. And upon hearing that this one had been born, he was troubled that his rule was going to be in jeopardy one day. And so he demands from the chief priests and the scribes, gathers them together, and he says... He basically says, tell me where Christ should be born. And the chief priests and the scribes, they cite to Herod Micah 5.2. And in Matthew 2.6, they say, And thou Bethlehem in the land of Judah art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. So not a direct quote from Micah 5.2, but certainly a quote nonetheless, as we understand it. And I'm simply establishing how everyone in Israel knew Micah 5.2 was talking about the coming Messiah. And we have no doubts about the meaning of this passage. Now, I want to get this next point out of the way, and I don't say that in the sense that I want to minimize the point that I'm about to make, because I want you to get a hold of this for anybody that's on the fence on this issue. As you look at Micah 5.2 in the King James Bible, the end of it says, "...whose goings forth have been from of old from..." Everlasting. Well, this is a great verse, but it is one that has been changed greatly in modern versions. And again, I don't, I don't like to sit here and, and blow this trumpet often, um, even though it's worthy of doing it, because I want to just stay focused on the main thing. But you need to know this, because I know there are some people who are like, what's the big deal? I'm not going to get into the weeds here, but bottom line is the King James taken from this set of texts. All the other modern versions are taken from this set of text, two different texts. Okay, And so when they interpret Micah 5.2, this is what the NIV states, and you'll find most have the very similar wording. It states, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Now let me read you the two again. Ours says, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. NIV says, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. This debate over the Bible versions, I believe we need to understand what this passage is saying in our King James Bible. It is stating in this prophecy of Christ that Jesus would have no beginning of days. Do you catch that there? He is from everlasting. 
It shows that there has not been a time that Christ did not cease to exist or did not exist. I should put it that way. But the modern versions are saying that Jesus had origins. Whose origins are from old, from ancient times. This is a huge attack on the deity of Christ. Origin means there was a beginning point. I even looked it up to be sure. And his origins in the modern versions are said to be in ancient times. If Jesus did not always exist, and if he had origins somewhere in ancient times, then he cannot be deity. And if he isn't deity, then he isn't our Savior, and we are yet in our sins. This is a big deal, my friends. Jesus didn't have a beginning, but he is the beginning. In Revelation 111, Jesus says, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Revelation 21.6 says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Colossians 1.17 says of Christ, and He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. There hasn't been a time that Christ didn't exist. And any verse that says otherwise needs to be rejected as error. Listen, I'm not against those that have never studied the issue and they don't understand it. But we need to understand it because we're sitting here saying, this is God's preserved word for English-speaking people. Why do we say that? Because of errors like this. I don't know where you're at in this debate, but how much error are you willing to accept? Let me ask it this way. How much error causes something to be in error? Just one. I mean, the answer is obvious. And if you still aren't convinced on the veracity of the King James, I encourage you, please keep studying the issue. God will guide you into truth. Uh, I remember when I delved into this 21 years ago, and I'm thoroughly convinced that the King James is the Bible that we ought to be using for English-speaking people. And so long as I'm pastor, that's what we'll use. Amen. So now this verse here, it's interesting on several fronts. One way is Micah is foretelling of the destruction and captivity of Judah. But remember, God had already made some promises to Judah. And because of those promises, even though there's language of destruction, they're being told, don't worry, there's a better day coming. And in their mind, they may be wondering, is this the end of our nation? And and in this prophecy here, we see that there was coming a day when God would fulfill His promises. There would be a lion of the tribe of Judah rise. So this prophecy of the Messiah's birth, it gives assurance to a defeated people that while there would be destruction in Judah and there would be a captivity that would follow for 70 years, God was still going to keep His promise. Namely, His promise and His covenant to David. He had promised David that there would be a king that would come from the line of David and would be upon the throne. Now, I don't know why I picked this verse to read to you because it really has nothing to do with anything, but let's just read it anyway. Amen? 1 Samuel 17, 12. This is interesting. Now, David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse. And he had eight, he had eight sons, and the man went among, uh, went among men for an old man in the days of Saul. I love that line. Not only was he old, he went among men as an old man. Everybody knew this guy was old, amen. Um, 
I just find it interesting that God's going to preserve Judah in the long run because he made a promise to David. David just happened to be born in Bethlehem, Judah, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Um, and, and so what an interesting connection there. Or I should say that's where he lived. I don't know that that's where he was born. I didn't study it that deep. Amen. Now, it's just interesting to me. But there's many verses I could cite here when we talk about the covenant that God made with David. And I just want to pull a few verses from Psalm 89 to show you what God had said. In Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4, it says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant. Thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. Selah. And then in verse 28, it says, My mercy will I keep for him forevermore, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. In verses 34 through 37, it says, My covenant will... Will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips? Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon and as faithful witness in heaven. Selah. And it couldn't have been fulfilled in Solomon. There's obviously a spiritual meaning here because the literal throne of David after the days of Solomon was cut in two and eventually it's eroded away. There is no king in Israel today. And so now we have this prophecy here of this this coming one that was going to rule and sit upon the throne. And when Gabriel comes to the Virgin Mary, he tells her of Jesus in Luke 1, 31-33, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great. He shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And get this, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. God said He was going to keep His covenant with David and His covenant He kept. I'm glad we serve a God that keeps His Word. He honors His promises. He honors His Word. He honors His covenants. He says that whosoever will come unto Him can be saved. Whosoever. That doesn't mean anybody's eliminated. He says that we are sealed until the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit. We can't lose it. And yet there's so many people that are wondering, can I even be saved? Or if I have it, can I lose it? Listen, I want to tell you, God keeps His Word. And if He says it, that settles it. And He has said, you are sealed. Whosoever will can call upon the name of the Lord. What a blessing. The bottom line to this point, though, is that while Judah would have to experience the judgment of God, they still one day would experience the mercy of God Because Christ would come on the scene. So while this prophecy has its troubling times, there still was comfort that better days lay in store. Now, Bethlehem was a small town six miles south of Jerusalem. It was also known, as I've already said, as Bethlehem Ephrata, as Bethlehem Judah. It was known as both. Bethlehem means the house of bread. According to Genesis 35, 19, Ephrata, which means fruitfulness, was on the way to Bethlehem. So they must have been very close to each other, and it just became known as Bethlehem Ephrata. Maybe like Minneapolis, St. Paul. Dallas, Fort Worth. 
Anyway, they were very near, but there's a lot more to this than meets the eye. Try to stay with me here. I'm going to maybe bore some of you. Uh, Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel. They were both the daughters of Laban. Now, it would be a series in of itself to explain the significance of Rachel and Leah to the depth that it deserves. But Jacob wanted to marry Rachel. Remember that? The Bible says Leah was tender-eyed. A lot of scholars have debated what that means. I'll leave it to the scholars. Leah was tender-eyed. But this is what it says about Rachel in in contrast. She was beautiful and well-favored. So Jacob desires to marry Rachel... In Genesis 29, 18, And Jacob loved Rachel and said, I will serve thee seven years for Rachel, thy younger daughter. I love you, Shug, but seven years? Come on. (laughs) Well, Laban agrees. The Bible says those seven years seemed unto him but a few days for the love he had for her. And she just melted. He must have been a romantic. I'd have been like, good night. I still got six years, 364 days. Or 59 days in the Hebrew calendar. Anyway, they agreed to this, and it seemed, seemed just a few days. And when the seven years was up, Jacob came to collect. <laughs> but Laban, Laban didn't give Jacob Rachel, did he? He gave her Leah. The supplanter had been supplanted. So he, he gives him Leah. I've got my opinions on all that. That's neither here nor there at the minute. And, and the reason Laban gave was this. It must not be so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. And so Jacob, he serves another seven years for Rachel. What a guy. Amen. I'll take the spoils of my friend. Amen. <laughs> the point is, Laban essentially said, it's not lawful in my country to marry off a younger daughter while the eldest daughter is still single. And it's a fascinating study But what you'll find is Leah was Jacob's wife of law, while Rachel was his wife of love. Now, both are a picture of God's law versus his love. And if one ever gets a hold of all this entails, the scriptures will just blossom before your eyes. It's amazing study. I don't have time to get into it now, but I said that to highlight this of what happens in Genesis 35. Verses 16 through 19, it says, And they they journey, this is speaking of Jacob and his family, and they journey from Bethel, and there was but a little way to come to Ephrath. And Rachel travailed, she had hard labor. And it came to pass, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said unto unto her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. And it came to pass, as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. Out of the twelve sons of Jacob, those that would become the twelve tribes of Israel, Rachel only gave birth to two of them, Joseph and Benjamin. But what you need to know about Rachel is she really wanted children. It was her desire. Genesis 30 and verse 1, And when Rachel saw that she bare Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister 
and said unto Jacob, Give me children or else I die. Well, Rachel did bear and she gave birth to Joseph first. Joseph is very significant in your Bible uh, for a number of reasons. But in Genesis 49, when Jacob gathers his son together, he's going to tell them what will befall them in the last days. And when he gets to Joseph, he says this in Genesis 49, 22 through 26. Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well whose branches run over the wall. The archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him. But his bow abode in strength and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Even by the God of thy father who shall help thee and by the Almighty who shall bless thee with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lieth under, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of thy father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors unto the utmost, bound of the everlasting hills. There shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. Joseph, you're going to be fruitful. You're, you're going to be a bough that the branches are going to, they're going to run over the wall. I mean, it's just going to keep going. There's so much symbolism here. It's going to run over the middle wall of partition that separated the Jew from Gentile. Joseph would be the one who would go down to Egypt and marry an Egyptian woman. He would take a Gentile bride to himself. He would marry this Egyptian woman and he would, she would give birth to two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Ephraim means double fruit. You're going to be a fruitful bough. It's going to run over the wall. And in Genesis 48, Jacob, he's blessing Manasseh and Ephraim. You may remember the account. And Joseph thinks that he's guiding his hands the wrong way because he's given the birthright to the younger Ephraim instead of to Manasseh. He said, truly, his younger brother, speaking of Ephraim, shall be greater than he, speaking of Manasseh. And his seed, speaking of Ephraim's, shall become a multitude of nations. Fruitful, double fruit. And when the camp of Israel was set up um, in, the, in the wilderness, the tabernacle there was in the center. There was 12 tribes situated around uh, four sides, north, south, east, west. One principal tribe, two other tribes behind the principal tribe. And to the west, the principal tribe was Ephraim. And behind them was Manasseh and Benjamin. Very interesting because that's the offspring of Rachel. And the gospel of Christ primarily went westward toward the tribe of double fruit. And in the process of the gospel heading west, it gathered in a multitude of nations. Hallelujah. And the forces of the Gentiles were gathered in. It became a multitude of nations. Rachel bore Benjamin next and she died as a result. And so she names her child Benoni meaning the son of my sorrow. I would assume he waited till after she passed. We don't know, I guess. But Jacob now called him Benjamin, the son of my right hand. Benjamin would be the smallest tribe in Israel. They would be pretty much anonymous with Judah. You say the tribe of, or the house of Judah, you understood that it included Benjamin. 
1 Samuel 9.21, Saul answered and said, Am not I a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? And now Rachel, who longed to be a mother, to be fruitful as a mother, she's buried right by this little town of Bethlehem after giving birth to what would become the smallest tribe. She never did live to see the fruitfulness of her son Joseph and Ephraim, her grandson. And here in Micah 5 too, Bethlehem is called little among the thousands of Judah. But out of this seemingly small town where the wife of Jacob's love, or Israel's love, where she's buried after giving birth to small Benjamin, we find that there's going to be one that's going to be born who would be the ruler in Israel. And this one who would be born... The Messiah, he would be the fruitful bough of Joseph. And like Benjamin, he would be both the son of sorrow and the son of God's right hand. He would be a son of sorrow. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the son of man who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. He would be the son of sorrow. God said, this is the son of my right hand. And now he's seated at the right hand of God. The law only brings death. Do you hear me now? I'm going to try to bring this home and make a point. Christ would labor for a bride that he loved more than the law could ever produce. Jacob labored for a bride that he loved beyond that he labored for law. And Christ came to this earth and he robed himself in flesh that he might die. The Bible says for the sufferings of death he was made lower than the angels. And he labored for a bride that he loved more than what the law could produce. In Christ's mercy... He spares us from what the law requires. The law requires death. For there is none good, no, not one. And if you transgressed in the law in one point, you've transgressed it all. And in Christ, there is grace to bring life to whosoever will. The ruler has come forth of Bethlehem just as prophesied. And now we are in the bride of Christ. The bride that He loves. There's coming a day when the trumpet sounds. And up we go. And we'll be with our Savior. We'll be with our ruler. He has come forth. This is such an amazing book. Would you agree? So trustworthy. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been of old from everlasting. I feel like we just need to stop there. Let's pray.